Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. Hey friends, Natalie here. I just wanted to give you a brief content warning for this particular episode. We spend a few minutes talking about childhood sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering. We also talk about cancer, which some listeners may find triggering for their own experiences. And we use a little bit more coarse language than we typically do in an episode. So listener discretion advised, do what feels right for you. Peace and love. And we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us for today is Joe Schoenwolf, who is the host of What the Hell is a Pastor, um, which is, that might be the best name I have ever heard for any podcast, whether or <laughs> not it is connected to the ministry in any way at all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's right up there with uh, Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. It's, I mean, that is a great name for a podcast as well. So we did it. Goal achieved. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. You got to come up with something snappy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no. So thank you so much for joining us for this. Um, you've been you've been on my bucket list because, oh. you know, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're, you know, I'm always looking for like interesting kind of conversations to have and connections to make with you know, other people that are out there and everything. So, and um, it's ministerial podcasting is, it's an interesting um, frontier. Yeah. It it goes in so many different directions. There are very progressive uh, Christian podcasts, like the ones that you and I have. And then there are extraordinarily conservative ones and then there's ones that are kind of middle of the road and then there are ones that are uh geared more towards clergy and ones that are geared more towards laity and uh I mean it's just it's all over the place so you know I'm learning more and more about it as I do this crazy thing yeah I mean and I'm so glad that you are learning because we have really flown by the seat of our pants at what the hell is a pastor <laughs> That yeah. is what we do. Initially, we really thought that we would do something that would give the laity an, an understanding of what it is to be a clergy person and kind of what the behind the scenes of ministry is to like show people that pastors are people too. Yeah. Um, so very early, you'll hear us explain words like eschatology and things like yeah. that, like your seminary terms. Um, and I mean, we I think we still do a pretty good job of like talking around complicated theological concepts. But um, we have really dropped the we're doing this just for the laity uh, because we yeah. are so con- we are so not concerned, but like focused on um, what what ordination is and what we do as pastors thinking of pastoring as a job rather than just a calling because we're thinking about how that language of call can get used to um 
to manipulate people, but also how it can be life-giving. It's been, it's been an interesting journey. Um, And so I know there are people out there who are very focused on like, we are going to market to this group. And we have been like, we'll talk and see who's interested. (laughs) And uh, it's, you know, it's been fun. Yeah, totally. I bet. So the first place that we like to start these interviews is to invite you to share with us as much as you'd like to about your spiritual journey. Oh, uh, yikes. No, (laughs) it's fine. Um, You did send me these questions ahead of time, so I am emotionally prepared. Um, So my spiritual journey has been, especially recently, I've had a lot of... um, more downs than ups, shall we say. Uh, I grew up United Methodist. So um, my dad was kind of Lutheran. My mom was uh, rebelling against the Baptist church. (laughs) And um, together they kind of landed on, and maybe Methodism will be our middle ground. Um, And then my mom was hired by... I'll just name drop all the churches, St. Luke's <laughs> United Methodist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. And uh, as their one of their nursery coordinators, you know, working in the nursery. And um, that meant that me and my two brothers were always at church. <laughs> we were there before anybody else got there to open up the nursery. We were there after everybody else left to close up the nursery. Um, and so I was a real church mouse growing up. Um And I've always felt this is something that kind of came to me as a recovered memory almost when we talked with uh, Derek Scott on the podcast, because Derek feels the same way. Um, I guess he's not a dangerous liberal lady, but he is (laughs) a great person to talk to about these kind of things. Um, I I really feel like church, a church is my home. Like that's my safe space. Um, Not necessarily when there are people in it. But like uh, the empty sanctuary really has a call for me. Um, There used to be, I I say used to be, uh, my church expanded while like in the 90s, you know, there was there was this weird church boom in, um, I I don't know if it's nationwide, but I know in the South in particular, as like the roaring 90s were happening, churches were expanding because there was more money. So we built a bigger sanctuary. And while that sanctuary was being built, um, my mom had keys to everywhere in the church because she was a nursery coordinator. And so she needed to be able to make sure she could get into any space. And so I was very used to like swiping my mom's key. I, but I think I borrowed it. I think I told her. I don't know. I was very used to being like, I can go anywhere in the church. So I'm like eight or nine and the construction site is like, you know, danger, construction, don't go in here. But I would sneak into the construction site um, and sit in this like on the big concrete slab where the altar space would be um, and just feel like the most at home I had ever felt in my life you know um and this kind of translated throughout my life like I um after college I got a travel scholarship to go um look at sacred architecture in Europe so I did your backpacking through Europe experience um and I had been in a ton of churches um and I also traveled with my youth choir and like all sorts of other things so I've been in a lot of sacred space Christian spa- sacred spaces in particular um And there is something that like calls to me about this place that has potential, you know, Mm -hmm. where um, 
people do gather so it's we have designated it a sacred space via our practice and via our intention but it's also like you can feel the waiting for what worship will be and that continued i mean through seminary through my time as a pastor like if i needed a, a place to ground me going into an empty sanctuary regardless of the sanctuary was um real good for me um, I also grew up in the purity movement. I don't know if y'all have talked about that on the podcast. Um, oh, we it, talked about it. Yeah, it um, is like the other theme of my spiritual journey. Uh, and I talk about it when I preach all of the time. Um, it was I, as a, um, in like alert for listeners, brief mention of childhood sexual abuse. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. So um, as somebody who was figuring out how to talk to adults about what was happening to me and then going through the purity movement and being told that like, I am like an apple with a bite taken out of it already. There's no restoring who I am. I just have to wait on somebody gracious enough to accept my brokenness. Um, and then having really intense, like, I'm a rule follower. I am a people pleaser. I am a former gifted kid. So being told that like the way you be holy is to wait on your husband and uh, which is funny because I'm bi. So I could have been waiting on anybody, any spouse, but to wait on your husband for God to give you a husband and um, for, for your goal in life to be as unattractive as possible so that your husband will see through your homeliness and pick you it was a whole deal um and so i spent a lot of time really policing what i looked like and what i did and who i was close to because i really thought you the only person you could be close to was your future spouse in that yeah. kind of like toxic masculine masculinity way um and so, like, throughout my life, those have been kind of these two themes that, like, I know there's a home for me when I can be in a sanctuary. And also, the hours, you know, I probably spent at least a year of my life in prayer over who my romantic partner would be and over, like, trying to repent of, like, crushes I felt. Um and also feeling deeply, deeply unworthy because the only good thing about me is my virginity and somebody else took that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of like the foundation. And then I can talk about my time uh, as a pastor if you want, because that's another saga too. But I, I also want to leave space for interrupting and talking about other things. <laughs> Oh, yeah, totally. But and I you you are very gracious, my dear. I'm first of all, I'm, I'm very, I'm very sorry to hear about your 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 journeys and your struggles and that you're an abuse survivor. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I uh I grew up with one foot in the door of purity culture and one foot out of the door. Mm. I think in the 90s, um if you were active in church life, then in particular, there was a boom of purity culture. Yeah. It touched it was, you in some way. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was in the air. And I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive even to the language of, you know, it was, it, it touched you in some way when, you know, oh, yeah. when you're an abuse survivor, but like, and unfortunately it, it's, 
everything becomes very toxically enmeshed and interconnected when you when you dip a toe into purity culture Mm -hmm. Um, and and so I um you know, so I, because on one end, the, the messages that I was getting in the church that I grew up in were of that waiting to have sex until you're married is the, is the ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, uh, I had important grownups in my life, like Sunday school teachers sharing that, oh yes, we were virgins when we got married. And now that I'm an adult, it's like, I didn't need that information. That was completely unnecessary. Yeah. But again, in purity culture, things that should have better boundaries around them don't. Yeah. And so it just becomes inherently very messy. Um, and then even like, even outside of church, like even like in school, because it was also like, I, like I graduated from high school in 2005. So hmm. that, um that early, te- that like teenage life of, you know, that time in my life was very, um it was, uh, it was, you know, W's first administration, um, you know, so, and, and like, there was a lot of things that were becoming, uh, more and more controversial, um, as a country. And because of that, more conservative people were, uh, digging their heels in deeper in some directions. And so, uh, church, uh, so, uh, schools were, uh, experimenting with like abstinence only sex education programs, Oh yeah, and, you know, and a certain president was very strongly behind that as well as very um, heterosexist ways of teaching about sexuality. Mm. Um, so like, you know, I had a, so like, I, 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 I will never forget that like my eighth grade science teacher uh, taught us all of this, like nowadays would o- could only be described as propaganda. And it was a public school about yeah. like, in, in a sex ed curriculum so it's like and it's so how like it's it, it was absolutely not like unbiased information she was telling us about how you know every birth control method in the world has you know failure rates which means it will fail mean girls had just come out or it did by oh, the right. time I was in high school so you know it was very the messaging was very don't have sex because you will get pregnant and die and die um, yep 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 yep, yep. <laughs> so very much like 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 not we're not educating you to the fact that there uh, to, to the fact that there are uh risks and that you need to act responsibly in the world but rather we are trying to scare the horny out of you yeah um, yeah so i mean like so i i, I grew up with a, a foot very strongly in that door and then and then a foot kind of on on the outside world in this uh, you know like in you know not not necessarily even because my church would ever have lent to lead to that direction but just because i was exposed to other people who weren't part of that so i kind of i understand both upbringings mm-hmm. um but you know yeah it's it's just it was such a crazy time and it's almost like it's like everything about that has become something that's like almost in a time capsule and I hope it stays there because I'm hoping that like you know future generations especially of young women will not understand what the hell I'm talking about when I say things like purity rings and purity pledges 
and any of this very shameful language that again I was taught not just not just at church but in health class at school about mm-hmm. you know oh well you know you're you're you know you're a dirty sock now because because you've been worn before like oh my god yeah or you're a chewed up piece of gum yeah yeah or your very painful you know metaphor that you use for yourself that you were an apple with a bite taken out of it I mean, um, that was an exercise we did at a purity lock-in. The leader, yeah. like, took an apple, took a bite out of it. We passed it around and each took bites, which is gross to think of now yeah. and on every level. Like, there's so much spit on that, and spit has so many terms. Yeah. Um, but it goes around the circle, it gets back to the leader, and the leader says, this apple is you. Do you want to give your husband? And it was your husband, even though it was a mixed gender group, and presumably some of those people would have wives. Do you want to give your husband an apple core or a whole apple? Just incredible, incredible the things they thought of. And I, um, when I was a ministry intern in, I guess it was 2018, we went to Rock, which is the Baltimore Washington Conference's big youth conference. Yeah. And they had a table set up where people were selling purity rings. And I almost pulled a full on Jesus. Like I had to go walk out of that room to stop myself from flipping that table because I'm there with kids and it would reflect poorly on the senior pastor who I really care about and think is a great person. <laughs> but I like left to my own devices, I would have wrecked that human. And that's a lot of rage that I need to figure out uh, where to put. <laughs> that's part of my current spiritual journey is where do you, what do you do with the mad that you feel? <laughs> Very Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, that's the other end of growing up in the nineties that I'm lucky about is that I had, I had healthy, healthy uh, images and sounds like that in my ear, in addition to, you know, some of the other gloom and doom, because I, I mm-hmm. think at the time it was also just very well, it, like, like literally every two seconds, somebody said, it's the nineties. Right. Like it's, it's, it's cartoonish how often we said that then. Um, but like, it, you know, so in addition to like the purity culture stuff that was going on at the time, there was also like, uh, Tim LaHaye's left behind series. Oh my gosh. I read films. all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, you know, and then we were wearing, uh, what would Jesus do bracelets? Yes. Um, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and then even if you weren't religious, you were uh, starting to think about what you were going to do for Y2K. Oh my God. Y2K. Yeah. <laughs> so like I, and I took that part of it very thankfully as a complete joke because my dad was a computer engineer and he mm. was saying like, 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 look, it, it's just not going to be what, what any of these people think. But right. I had a I had a, a I had a pencil sitting on my uh, computer desk as a it was a joke item that I got at like at like Best Buy or something that it was um emergency computer backup system and on the the, the, the tip <laughs> end it said enter and on the eraser end it said delete. I love um, it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it was, but, uh, yeah, a lot of us, if just, if you grew up in a church anywhere during that time, you grew up with uh, this culture of fear and anxiety 
and this culture that more and more so and ironically considering that like the fact that it was the 90s was also partially supposed to mean that um things were becoming more progressive and this was a new age and we could do and think and say things in different ways and yet we were trapping women in a box worse than we ever had yeah yeah so and that, that that's you know like that was what was so destructive about purity culture, you know, for the sake of anyone listening to this, like there's, you know, like by all means in your life, practice what feels right to you. You know, if like, if sexual abstinence feels like the thing that you're supposed to do now, by all means, that is your calling. Um, you know, but it's a, it's a personal choice. And when you attach, um, when you attach these very damning images and value judgments to sexuality, and particularly when you're teaching that to children, oh my gosh, yeah, days around Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the youth pastor or the health teacher, you know, that you knew when you were 12, who was teaching you that you were a worn out sock or an apple with a bite out of it, or a chewed up piece of gum is going to be long gone in your life by the time you're married. But then you're still going to be navigating these, these icky things that you were taught 20 years ago, you know, that you're not, that you're still deconstructing. For sure. it's you know it, it, so it's a sobering thing as clergy thinking about this and especially as clergy women because we just we're we have uh, it, you know we're we're putting messages out there into the world that people take seriously even if you know even if you know sometimes we're tempted to think that like nobody's really listening to this you know yeah i mean i there was a season in my time serving as a pastor and as i thought about like my homiletic strategy that i would be paralyzed being like what can i say that isn't going to hurt somebody um and there there are plenty of things that you can say that aren't that are not damaging messages but are messages that that open you up to goodness but at the same time i was in seminary starting in 2016 and so So I felt a deep need and I went to seminary at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. So I was in Washington, (laughs) D.C. starting in fall of 2016. So went to a lot of, oh yeah, great time to be in the district. Um, Went to a lot of protests. I started writing for the Resistance Praise, which was a daily devotional that went out um, that was done by Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. I was thinking all of the time about how can we as Christians in particular deal with uh, what's happening in the world due to Christians in particular electing this particular person. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so that means that like, you need to have a language around sin. You need to have a language around societal sin, social sin, the ways in which we harm each other. And, but saying sin triggers something different in the Christian brain than unless you have really shaped people to think about these things um, in a way that is life-giving to them um, and helps them diagnose what's going on rather than brings shame. I think shame is an important tool, but I think that uh, for the most part, it's difficult to use in sermons. But I'm trying to think about like, how do I get people to realize that like things are very dangerous for people who are not white and people who are not men and people who are income insecure and people who are immigrants and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
And, and I really, really struggled with it. I thought that the prophets were really violent and used violent language when I was in seminary. Um, I have a funny story about trying to translate what a prophet's saying that we can talk about later if we want. But um, yeah, trying to think about reflecting on my own childhood and how um, so much language that seemed innocent or correct to the people who were caring for me um, left me with like lifelong hangups and like, to be quite honest, panic attacks when I tried to get intimate with people. So yeah, yeah I it's one of those things that there's a great responsibility on the preacher. And at the same time, you also do your best and clean up where you make mistakes, you know? And if you are constantly in that rhythm of cleaning up after yourself, um, the damage doesn't, doesn't stay as long, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what are you doing in your ministry these days? Uh, fun question. Um, (laughs) so I, um, I was ordained as a, not ordained, I was never ordained. Um, I was a licensed local pastor in the United Methodist Church starting in July 2019, and mm-hmm. I served from there until the end of 2020 and mm-hmm. left a particularly rough call, and I there's so yeah. much to say about that, um, oh. but right now, I spent like the year of 2021 kind of recovering and rethinking. I resigned my candidacy um, because I... You know, the United Methodist Church asks you to covenant with the denomination when you become ordained that, um, you know, the United Methodist Church's struggles will be your struggles and um, you will give what you can. And I just did not trust the church at that moment. I wasn't going to go forward with ordination. Um, and it, so, But it took all of 2021 to figure that out. Uh, and then in 2022, I got a really rough case of COVID and then was diagnosed with a listener's mention of like medical struggles and cancer. I was diagnosed with stage one colon cancer. Oh, dear. And uh, I am, uh, knock on wood, going to be fully in remission by the end of this year. But um, it was stage one, so we caught it early. Surgery fully removed it. All the lymph nodes look fine. So I'm um, really hopeful that, like, that's okay. But spent that whole year being very, very sick and not knowing what was going on until really the back end of the year, um, mm-hmm. which does not leave a lot of time to think about what you're doing in your ministry. <laughs> and so this year has been a lot of recovering from from um, the what's going on with my body, kind of moving past the initial stage of dealing with religious trauma and moving more into the like, I have processed this and now I can do more things with my life and with my brain. Um, and so right now, as of uh, Saturday afternoon, I am a declared candidate with the Church Within a Church movement for ministry and uh, hoping to be ordained in 2025. Uh, Church Within a Church is a small movement that came out of the United Methodist Church um, shortly after the 2020 or the 2000, gosh, the 2000 General Conference. And we're worried about Y2K. (laughs) These people are doing queer affirming ministry. Um, I did not know this as part of our like United Methodist history. There were arrests at General Conference of people protesting the treatment of LGBTQ people at the 2000 General Conference. Um, and coming out of that, the Church Within a Church movement founded and mo- moved toward what they thought was the thing they knew how to do and the way they could stand against what the church was doing by ordaining gay and lesbian people. 
Yeah. So um, I have gotten connected to them through um, connections where we're at in Winchester. Um, and I'm excited to see a white, like this very flexible, but very supported version of ministry and ordination could look like for me. Um, mostly I guest preach at friends' churches when they're out of town. So um, I'll be guest preaching right before Thanksgiving service, right before Thanksgiving is the next thing on my jacket. Um, I do what the hell is a pastor, and I think of that as a ministry. Um, and it took me a long time. I thought this was this weird thing I was doing with my friend Ethan Shear, um, yeah. and it has really turned into holding people's stories. And what is ministry but holding people's stories? Um, and then I have tried to be um, a real pastoral presence in situations when I know that people do not trust the church. So, for example, I have a, a trans friend who needed to go out of state for treatment. Um, and I offered to take her for uh, take her down for the treatment that she needed, um, not because her local family isn't supportive, but because it, she and her wife had three kids and like her wife is not going to pile three kids in a car for this a really long drive. Um, mm. And my friend was like, well, you know, this is ministry, you know, like you are ministering to me in this moment. Um, and I have tried to hold on to moments like that where I am doing the work of pastor. I'm just not doing it in a church or in a really formalized way. And I'm trying to think about how I can formalize it. So that's where I'm at with ministry right now. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm joyous that you, you know, you managed to find a safe home in church yeah. within a church and also within your podcast. Um, and I, I a hundred percent agree with you. It is a ministry to do a podcast, at least, you Thank know, you. you know, we, we, we do our best. Um, right. But you, you know, it, it's, and it's a big part of like where this podcast came from is that it, my very strong belief that ministry can't keep being what we think it is. It, it Agreed. like, it, it it can it's not sustainable it has to evolve or mm -hmm. it will die every living thing in the world has to evolve or die ministry should be no different right. and of course since we talked about being a christian in the 90s i am aware that you know that's opening up another can of worms with the whole evolution thing but still oh man um, yeah and i'm i'm sorrowful for your health struggles i'm very glad to hear though that you're feeling so much better yeah, I um have become a weird evangelist for if your poops aren't right, uh, stool softeners and fiber. Like your body has to adjust to it, but revolutionized how I use my body. Um, and I have a footless colon, so just imagine what it can do for you. Uh, yeah, no, it's this is one of those things that you know we talk about all the inequalities in our healthcare system. You can't ask access a colonoscopy before you're 40 and have it covered as a preventative measure. And so when I got it, my brothers needed colonoscopies and figuring out how to make sure that they had that, uh, trying to figure out a medical history from families who just like didn't write this stuff down, you know, all yeah. sorts of things like that. Like, boy, our system is. Uh, it is, it's a challenge to get the care we needed. And the only reason that I really was able to access care is because of Medicare. Um, yeah. It like, I 
I have not been fully employed, full-time employed since leaving the pastorate because it was COVID and uh, finding jobs has been really difficult and all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, an MDiv isn't a super transferable degree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I, I am actually very, very thankful for the people who expanded Virginia Medicaid, Medicaid and Medicare, because that, that paid for it. Otherwise, like I grew up poor, I would not have gone to the doctor for any of these things if I didn't have, didn't know it would be free. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, totally. And I pray for, a world where we no longer have to have to you know ask those kinds of very difficult questions we just take care of our bodies yeah. and more than that a world where people understand why that's so important yeah um, yeah um i would love to hear more about the formation of what the hell is a pastor so the the calling that went into it and you know what what brings you joy about your podcast Oh my gosh, what brings me joy? That it that will be an ironic statement for those who listen to what the hell is a pastor, because we are Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I hope you can edit this out. Um, Ian is coming downstairs and heading out the door of my partner Ian, who uh, is my connection to this podcast. So he's saying hello. <laughs> but yeah, no worries. Hello, Ian. <laughs> um, they say hello back, Ian. Okay, he waved. Um, yeah, so what the hell is a pastor? We started um recording episodes in August of 2019. Uh, Ethan Shear, my co-host, was serving as a pastor up in Pennsylvania um, in a in a pretty rural congregation, a good size, but a rural congregation. I was serving as a pastor in Western North Carolina um, at Whittier United Methodist Church. And uh, we were just, we wanted to talk about, and I cannot think of who came up with the name. I think we came up with it as a joke and we're like, actually, let's just stick with it and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. Um, But to talk about really just what our life was like as pastors and what we were doing. One of the early stories in the podcast uh, is there's a bat that flies into the church and chaos ensues. Uh, And so we go from talking about that bat to talking about like, why didn't the church want us to call an exterminator? And why does the church think they need discounts in all the services in the community? And how do we show up in the community in a fiscally responsible way? So, um, Really, from its beginning, we are telling ministry stories, but we're also reflecting on the act of being in ministry, um, walking that weird line between a spiritual leader and nonprofit CEO that most parish pastors have to be. thinking about like how you do the job um, and how do you have good boundaries with the job and all sorts of things like that. Uh, Ethan and I met at seminary at Wesley um, and we actually met through a Bonhoeffer class, a class on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we were writing our final papers. Uh, Actually, Ian was there too. And I have no idea how the trio of us formed, but we were writing our papers in the library uh, and Ethan was working at the library. So he came over and chatted and like one of the funniest nights of my life like we just sat there and laughed and made fun of this very fancy boy who somehow committed himself such so much to the gospel that he tried to kill Hitler um and and also talking about I think for all three of us the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer has been important 
But also, this was a very gay, fancy man who somehow, who wrote poetry when he was in a concentration camp, and it's not good poetry, um, to his quote-unquote friend. There's so many injustices, but also, I have such an affection for Dietrich that you can just look at him and be like, he did not want that published. Um, anyway, so we really bonded over this and um, kind of grew closer as friends as the years progressed. And so it just felt very natural to start a podcast together because Ethan's a storyteller. He's formerly an actor. I like to run my mouth. It worked out well. Um, yeah. Over the course of the first year of the podcast, we really handle a lot of the um, the difficult things that were happening in my parish setting and then COVID for both of us. Um, and then Ethan uh, got into a PhD program at the University of Virginia and I left my congregation. And so after that, we shifted in year two to um, really interviewing other people and other pastors about what they do and why they do it. Um, we've done a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of, but we've talked to several people who have been under complaint for doing same gender weddings and what that process is recently. Mm -hmm. We did a series about um, the Pioneers Church Plant in Durham. That's a former United Methodist Church Plant that's homophobic. Um, mm. And we call that series Pioneering Durham because there is just quite a bit of colonial mindset amongst other terrible homophobic mindset um, and how the church, how the conference really dealt with that, um, which is a piece of work we're really proud of. But yeah, yeah. I, I think it's been... Ethan and I are both very curious about people. We're curious about how you do this job. We're curious about God. And we're curious about um, how we do church differently in the future. That's really a big focus of Ethan's PhD work is what should the white church in North America be thinking about ourselves? And how might we both um, repent and repair of the sins of our past and reimagine re what we can be in the future. And I think those are themes that come through in the podcast. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, meanwhile, over here, you know, and, and, you know, listeners of this podcast will know, you know, will know a bit of this journey story and, and I, you know, and you and I talked about it a bit before you came on here, but like, you know, like I've, you know, and like I had said before, I, you know, I am curious and constantly exploring what is at the edge of what we call ministry and then what is past mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, you know, I'm, I, it's already been, oh boy, 11 years since I graduated from seminary. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. Um, I have narrowly survived them. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, even when I was, even when I was in seminary, which I think of as relatively recent, even though it's really not anymore, um, you know, the golden, we still have these ideas of like the gold standard of what ministry should be. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you're going to be in a, you're going to be in a parish church somewhere in the suburbs and you're going to have chicken barbecues on the fourth Sunday of every month. Um, and you're going to have a wonderful Sunday school program and like, it, you know, so it, we're like, you know, even well into the aughts and then it going into the 2010s, we're still, 
it we're you know we were still echoing these like fantasyful ideas of what church would look like that sounded like they came out of the 50s they absolutely um, came out of the 50s yeah yeah and like you know and more power to you know your you know everybody who has wonderful memories of the 50s please hold on to them that's great but it, it's just we have to live in the now yeah. And especially after COVID happened, COVID just was like a giant anvil from Looney Tunes that just fell out of the sky and it hit your piano. Like, absolutely. It, 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 you know, like it, everything that we thought was true, you know, was turned over on its head. And everything that we thought we knew about coping and doing things in this world got turned upside down. And we learned so much during that time, both good and bad. And one of the things that we learned is that ministry really has to be able to adapt to technology mm -hmm. or it has no business even existing. It will, it will just wither and die. Um, especially if we want to be able to reach younger people yeah. or even if we want to be able to reach older people who, you know, many of them really still are not going out of their homes anywhere near as often as they did prior to 2020 because they yeah. don't want to be sick. Um, you know, like we, we realize how much we disenfranchised people by not being willing to think outside of the box, especially because when we started live streaming worship services and having a zoom option for meetings, we had people come back into participation in the church that had, you know, that had been kind of sidelined for years. And it was because yeah. like, Hey, now I can do this from home on my computer. It's finally accessible to me. Mm -hmm. I, I think we realize we should always have been live streaming things. We should always have had a Zoom option. We should always have had remote capabilities. Um, so you know, and then I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm curious about the conversations that are not being had that need to be had because the not wanting to talk about things. Yeah. is crushing the church you know yeah. if you have you seen the movie Encanto yes it's yeah it's one of my favorites but uh they don't want to talk about Bruno right <laughs> famously is, yeah even though all like and then they and then they go into a five minute song about him like all they do is talk about Bruno but meanwhile here in the United Methodist Church you know and, and in the, like and in like the Christian church globally but particularly in the UMC as it's always been my home like we don't want to talk about sexuality and yet all of our general conferences since 1972 have been dominated with votes and talks about human sexuality yeah. we don't want to talk about politics but it permeates everything that we do. And especially in a post Trump world, mm -hmm. uh, how can you possibly avoid it? Like you, you, unless you live under some kind of a rock, this is your life. You have to face it. You know, we don't want to talk about money, but then, you know, we we're constantly playing the shell game of how we're going to balance the budget and how we're going to keep the doors open and the heat on. Yeah. Um, you know, and we can, we could go on and on, but like, you know, and then, and then there's the conversations that, you know, happen even more behind closed doors, but that need to come out into the open. These conversations about how, you know, we've been ordaining women for over 60 years, but we still treat women like second-class citizens among clergy. And now yeah. we're becoming the majority 
in the clergy, but we're still second class citizens. Um, and these conversations about how we have not been able to fully integrate parenthood and ministry together. Mm-hmm. And then it disenfranchises younger people wanting to go into the ministry. So we see more older ministers and it disenfranchises women more than men, as all things do when you make it about parenting. Women pick up the bulk of the labor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, of course, everything that we talk about with like GLBTQIA inclusivity and, you know, and and the this world struggles with race and things like that. So, you know, I got I got trolled by somebody in the comments section on a sermon that I posted on YouTube during the pandemic. And that person called me a dangerous liberal lady preacher. And that's actually where that came from. Nice. But it was the best thing he ever did for my ministry because I've been dining out on that for three and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> because it was it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, you know, you gotta when you get when the inspiration strikes, you gotta run with it. You know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Gosh, yeah, I you know, there's something about um The United States in particular, our inability to talk about politics, even though, um, I mean, I think the, the, the separation that we don't make, but I think is very important for us to make, is partisan politics versus politics as how we live our life together. Because we are unwilling to uh, think about partisan politics, we are unwilling to think about our life together and how we want to live life together. And that's how you stay stuck thinking that a document written by people in the 18th century can be fully alive for us (laughs) today. Um, but yeah, I, that, that was something I ran into a lot. Hang on, let me adjust my microphone. Um, in my churches is, uh, they had had a pretty rough experience with the 2016 election where they shut down their Facebook page because, um, individuals could not stop arguing over partisan politics on their Facebook page. And so they just didn't even want to approach how we live our life together. But in, you know, 20, we had the 2019 special called general conference that really would have required them to think you'd think about, uh, human sexuality and what they think about it. And then in January of 2020, the protocol for reconciliation through grace and separation came out and you'd really think that like they'd be ready to talk about human sexuality. They were not. The previous pastor had not had these conversations. And so I received a lot of homophobic comments Um just as people were processing what they thought about uh, people who are people who are gay in particular, there was a lot of hate directed at gay men. Um, they were kind of fine with lesbians. Apparently, there had been lesbians who had come to the congregation. They did not know what to do with the bisexual person, and so I wasn't, I wasn't out, but I was feeling the pain of the closet for sure. Yeah. Um, and because they had not built any of those muscles of talking about how we live our lives together, because they had just eschewed talking about quote unquote politics and were not able to handle difficult conversations, that meant that like all of the crucial things that were being um, brought up in our faces in 2020 in the United Methodist Church around queer inclusion in the world, around how we care for each other in terms of healthcare 
care and keeping the vulnerable among us safe. And then with the George Floyd protests and, and how we deal with the legacy of racism and the exist current existence of racism, um, all these kind of things my church was just really not prepared to talk about. And um, I accidentally started a movement to remove a local confederate statue when i was pastor and my church was not prepared to talk to me about that and that mm -hmm. culminated in a member of the congregation screaming at me in the middle of a sermon um and physically threatening me in the middle of a sermon um and as we debriefed that moment together as a church, uh, I come to find out that the support I thought I had, the support that was being spoken to me to my face was not there anymore um, because we could not have the difficult conversation about how I was in a different political place than they were. I'm a lefty, uh, which is just so far different from where they were. And I was having to compromise on a lot of my beliefs. Um, yeah. That that summer, I chose to preach just through the Gospel of Matthew. I was like, this is what's in the lectionary. We just need some Jesus. Let's do it. Um, yeah. And it, they interpreted Whittier, which was the first church I served, interpreted all of those sermons politically. Wesleyana, which is a church that was added to my charge in July of 2020, and thought none of them were political and was so grateful for the Gospel. And so it really just, it comes down to how a church receives you and what they're willing to talk about with you. Um, and we just have to practice. We just have to build that muscle of talking together and not making everything the end of the world. I think we've been living in an apocalypse for a long time uh, and we have to realize that the world is continuing on. We have to talk about things. Yeah, totally. And the gospel is inherently political. Of course, like, honestly, you know, your, your, you know, your parishioners that we're hearing that we're hearing political messages coming out from the gospel of Jesus, they're right, but it's not, it's not coming from your partisanship. It's coming from Jesus. Right. Cause Jesus is concerned about how we live together. Yes. Yes. And that is an inherently political thing in these days and times. We, we need to, to just embrace it and it's okay if it makes us afraid or uncomfortable. It, it, it we just name the feelings say, I am afraid to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And then once you've named it, you release the energy that was tied up in all of that fear. And yeah. then you work. And we do, we have so many stories about, I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, yeah. if you can name that you are afraid, you know that you know the next response is, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? It, yeah. it empowers you. Yeah, I think you're very right with that. Yeah. Totally. Now, since you since you mentioned it earlier, it's too delicious to not bring up. You have a funny <laughs> story about something that a prophet really said, and I want to hear it. Oh, yeah. Uh, can we cuss on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We do have the time. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Um, so I'm in seminary. I'm in my second second semester of Hebrew Bible. And the professor uh, is, I'm pretty sure it's Jeremiah, but it could be Isaiah. Um, it could be a minor prophet. Wouldn't that be rich? I don't remember which prophet it was. But um, there's a word in Hebrew that like really is this like cry of the soul, like this, you know, like just just despair, frustration, anger, all of those things. Um, and the professor was like, you know, there's just not a word in English for this. There's not a good way to translate this because it has this, it contains such meaning in Hebrew that we don't have a, a parallel. 
And I, like, I don't know, was feeling contrary in that day. And I was like, well, surely there's something that we could, like, convey with it. I don't know if I was the person who said it, but I jumped in because I was feeling contrarian. And this very kind, very sweet Buddhist in front of me was like, well, maybe FML, you know, that might yeah. have it. And I was like, listen, if you're going to say the acronym, just say the word. Fuck. Like, I think that's what it means. And somebody across the room was like, what'd she say? And I was like, back and so just yelling it across our seminary classroom and the press professor was like you know I think that's an appropriate uh, translation of it so I felt very great and then that led to a whole conversation of well we can't say fuck in the pulpit so like what are we going to say but yeah like the prophets often are expressing grief and for many of us who are you know grown-ups <laughs> and using this language like fuck yeah. conveys that it conveys that like man I am at the end of my rope things are are in such a way that like there is no kind Christian word fuck is the word for it yeah. um and I think that like I don't know Paul uses shit I think there's a lot of ways that we can use the variety of the language that is available to us to uh to do that but no that's how I yelled the four-letter word in my seminary classroom <laughs> it was a great time that is that is fantastic, and yeah, we, we had a, a conversation with a previous guest about you know the the pearl clutching in yeah. Christianity that is um it, it can be a, a deeply deeply problematic and there's there's you have to you know there's you have to weigh you know what how you're going to use things and why because if you're using if, if you're using some of the four letter words and you're putting them out onto the ether um mm -hmm. someone is going to hear that and more than and more than likely you're going to have at least a few people that are it's going to raise their cortisol yeah um it's going to be a stress response and some people are going to go on the defense as soon as they start hearing bad words and it's just a natural instinct so don't fault them for it right. um but understand that for some people, they're going to hear that language with hostility, but um, you're also going to have people that you're, that are going to start having their oxytocin going up when they hear the four letter words, because they finally, they hear you speaking to them and yeah. you're now bonding and creating an avenue for conversation that had been closed before. And that is yeah. the beauty of fuck. Right. Truth. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, I've learned in pastoral care over the years that pearl clutching has to do with shame. Yes. And Ooh, if, yes. There's, if there's one thing that the world really needs to get rid of, it's shame, especially in the church. Um, and it just has no place, especially when I'm trying to bear witness to what you're going through in your life. I especially learned this um, during the brief time I spent as a hospital chaplain in Strong in Rochester, mm. that, um, you know, it's it, like, it, I'm not, I, I'm not going to be the first person to start swearing in a conversation because that's just not, it's not, it, I, I am not, it's not my role to be the first foot to go out there. Um mm. My role is to follow you wherever you go in your journey. But if your journey is one where your strongest and most salient song of your heart is fuck my fucking life, yeah. then, I, you know, like if I can walk out onto that water with you, it's going to be a much more powerful experience of feeling seen and heard yeah. than it 
be if I insisted on on throwing that sensor bar over your face. Yeah, I, I have a, a story that connects right with that. So as um, the Sunday after this member of my congregation screamed at me while I was preaching, we yeah. had a meeting with my district superintendent and the SPRC at distance. This was September of 2020. So we're in the fellowship hall. We're all wearing masks. We're all sitting six feet apart. Um, and they invited me to leave before Christmas. That was how my SPRC chair put it. My DS was like, nobody can invite her to leave except for the bishop. So let's try again. Um, and they rephrased and we talked about all these things. But as we had a conversation about uh, what would happen next and and what we would do and why they felt this way, I felt uh, so piled on. It was like they had forgotten that I had been beside them when their loved ones died. I had visited them in the hospital. I had heard and carried their stories and done extraordinary things for them. It's like they forgot all of the care I gave and I was getting it. it irritated and agitated obviously um and like my authentic self curses so of course I'm going to use the words of my heart and so there was a point in time where they were really piling on and I just said listen I fucked up okay and these are all former school teachers my DS could not have cared less but the rest of the people in the room they're all former or current school teachers and they all like you know sit up in their seats but they don't say anything because why would we say anything and we go about the rest of the meeting and a couple weeks later, one of the women who had been at the meeting is we're doing a like distanced lunch. So people are going to pick up the stuff and that's going to be a fundraiser for us. And so she's unloading things from her car and she's like, would you come help me? And I was like, sure, because uh, I didn't know anything was wrong. And we get out to her car and she says, you know, if you were a student of mine, I would have to fail you for using that language. And I'm blindsided. I have no idea what she's talking about. Uh, and she's like, and if you were my daughter, I would have slapped you across the face for using that word. And I was like, oh. So I go in that situation from being the spiritual leader to being a chastened child, right? Uh, all because I used this word that was appropriate to me and not appropriate to them. Um, and I, I just, you know, it, some of it's um, generational. I think that younger generations, maybe in the, and maybe this has always been true, but younger generations feel differently about curse words than older ones do. And I yeah. think especially now in the church, if you are a millennial, really you're a Gen X or a millennial or a Gen Z in the church, you have chosen to be there, right? Like it is no longer required for anybody to go to church. You are opting into Christianity, but you're opting into a Christianity that involves more of yourself right so you're going to be there for those for those moments of vulnerability and honesty that cuss words can be um yeah I have a whole host of thoughts about this but I always go back to to that moment of well if you were my child I, I would have reprimanded you in an aggressive way for the language you use because it's inappropriate and not respectful and I, I'm just not here to be respectful in moments where where respect looks like censoring my language rather than caring for the people who are present yeah and also you're not her child exactly exactly yeah, also don't like, hit your kids anyway yeah but there's just so many you know uh, unfortunately when you do get into difficult ministry situations one of the one of the biggest tells that this isn't working anymore is when those boundaries are just they're so blurred that they're they're no longer meaningful yeah yeah no 
Oh yeah, what a time. I and I I realize I'm ragging on them. They are a good group of people working through yeah. a difficult situation um and just weren't given the skills they needed to deal with a difficult situation like this. And if I was older and more experienced, really just if I was more experienced in parish ministry, I there are many things that I would have done different. Not the justice work that I did, but I would have thought differently about how I engaged in it and how I involved the congregation in it. Um, and probably would have had more stores of patience. But, you know, every pastor I've talked to, there wasn't a lot of patience to go around in 2020. That was a no. rough year in ministry. It was rough. There wasn't a lot of patience going around in the world. Yes. It was it was a very very difficult time and you know I think one of the things you just learn in the ministry is is to be able to extend grace to your past selves and to the people that you've known in the past and then shake the dust off your sandals and keep going. You yeah. know, you know people are people. You're going to have you're going to have rough moments. We don't judge one another for it, but we also name sometimes that a situation became too toxic to be able to be functional anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is very, very true. Yeah. So the question we always end on in these podcasts is a beloved one. If you could tell the world one thing about the divine, what would it be? What a great question. Well, thank you. Oh man. One thing about the divine. Um, I, uh, people who are listening, I was given the list of questions. My eyes apparently skipped over this question because I did not think about it. Um, I, so I, my first master's degree is in science and religion. Um, speaking of evolution earlier, I, uh, was caught up in evolution discussions. I wasn't taught evolution in high school in the, in the nineties, actually in the two thousands. Um, and so I've always been, very curious. My undergraduate degree is in physics and astronomy. I've always loved space. Um, and so uh, the people who think that there is a separation between people who uh, can employ the scientific method and people who can believe in the divine, um, that separation was created by people who wanted to gain political power in England. You know, it's, yeah. it is not something that we need to maintain. Um, and so I think, I mean, gosh, I, the first thing that I would want to preach to anybody is that the divine loves everybody and that includes queer people. <laughs> but if I got to have a follow-up to that, um, I think it would be that um, the divine is present in ways we don't even understand yet. And, um, and in every way that we grow our understanding, whether that's via scientific exploration or via theological exploration or meditation or relationships and community. Community, uh, there are always new ways to understand the divine. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you. I'm glad that and, my brain produced it. Oh, you did a great job of coming up with a deep answer on the cuff. <laughs> I, I thoroughly you. believe in you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this has been such, such a wonderful conversation with you, Joe. And I know that it is going to be a tremendous blessing to our listeners. So thank you so much for sharing your heart. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me on. This has been great. Yeah, totally. So peace and love to you, my dear, and all that you do. Same back to you. Cool.
Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer. <laughs>